So we want to make sure we're talking into the we're microphone. Clear. Yeah, he's right. the police on that. Yeah, yep. he'll um, get you. Uh oh. I'll I'll let you know if uh if it gets uh if you get a little quiet over there, don't take offense to it. You probably don't have to worry about that. Oh well, that's a good thing. <laughs> I've never I've been called many of things. Not quiet. Is what? One of- <laughs> what are you doing, man? Man, this dang thing's all jacked up. You gotta tight. You gotta tighten that knob down. There you go. Good gosh almighty, son. Welcome to the 307 podcast. I, I don't know if I'll edit any of that front stuff. We don't do a lot of editing around here. So I don't know if I'll edit all that out or not. Um, but welcome to the 307 podcast, where the old bull is still winning at CrossFit. <laughs> Yesterday, Blake got beat again. Yeah, I was um, telling Chili about how you was over there just literally just taking 10-second breaks between each burpee box jump over, not struggling against yourself, how'd doing the best you can. How'd y'all's run go this morning? Good. Good, yeah. And if if you miss one more time, I'm going to counsel you. Well, look, man. Go ahead. No. I, give me the excuse. <sighs> I'm not even getting into it today. No, but you were going to, and uh, he's he's got every legitimate excuse in the world, but that's why you get three times. You get three times. Okay. Then you're getting counseled. Chili's being gracious with you. <laughs> Whatever, man. Um, hey, Stacy, how you doing today? Hello, hello. Look, pull that pull that thing on back there to you. <laughs> that right, way you ain't got to right. lean for it. Told okay. you. Look, oh, I can't look at that. Oh, magic. Look at that, son. Ooh, now I can recline <laughs> and unwind. You just move that thing however <laughs> which way you want to move it. Um, oh, thank you for coming out here. It's a wonderful day to record a podcast, right? Yeah. It really is. With a good cup of coffee. Yeah. There's not a whole lot else that you can really get into outside today. We're getting hit with kind of our first little bout of winter weather down here in Georgia. Is is what I would call it. Terrible. Coming. Yeah, it's coming. Does it get muddy around the farm during oh, the winter? Oh yes, 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 yes. I did the walk of shame several times <laughs> last year, getting the tractor stuck. Oh yeah, Kubota stuck, and uh, having to call in for some reinforcements. That's not a call you want to make. <laughs> well, when you you know, especially I imagine when you got cows. Yes. Cows can make them a muddy mess chickens can make a muddy mess mm-hmm. and pigs can too you got pigs too i have two pot belly pigs but mm. they're on a they're on a short list here they're they're Are not they really? earning their keep around the farm i'll just <laughs> say that oh man <laughs> i am well, making some plans for them <laughs> i heard that man <laughs> but i don't know how much meat you can really get from a pot belly pig so um and I just don't, they're just, right now, they're just for amusement. It's really fun. But they, uh, you know, they're rooters, and they eat grubs and worms, and so they have just tore up our yard and my garden, and they have messed up all my fences, so they're costing me money mm. now. Mm. Yeah, they're not being good farm guests. Now, are these are these potbelly pigs free-ranging? They are free-ranging. Grass-fed pork. <laughs> what? What the heck? I thought. Uh, I thought. I didn't know you could free-range a pig. I thought that they would go wild. These just are like pets, though. Well, I believe these have gone wild. But they stay <laughs> around the, the house. Yeah, they come back. I mean, they're. 
you know, they come back to this little pen we have every night. They find their way back. That's why they have to be rehomed because um, the little pen they're in is close to my garden. And that's, so they have made a little hole for themselves where they escape. So they have, they have decided themselves they want to be free range. They've gone rogue. So it's, it's time to... Time to rein this in. The potbelly pigs have taken over for too long. <laughs> well, I think if if they had offspring, then they would be feral, right? They well, yeah. And I, honestly, so my brother he does a lot of hunting on the property, and we have um, about fifty acres of mountain land that we have in a conservation easement, and um, so a lot of that's just just so full of beautiful wildlife, and so we get to observe this wildlife camera. And so we last um, fall had a mama bear, black mm. bear um, coming through, which it was beautiful to watch her. And um, she had two cubs with her. And then this um, season, we have some wild boars. Mm. But those are kind of scary, honestly, because they like to, um, they'll um, come down with the cattle and sometimes they'll mess with like the, um, corral and like where we keep the hay rings and stuff. And, um, and they're, they're, they're not afraid. Mm-mm. They're not afraid to come at you. Do so, you need somebody to take care of them wild hogs? Over I mean, there? well, I mean, her brother, you know, her if brother, you know, if you know a man, we got send some, him my uh, way. <laughs> we got some thermal optic. We can shoot them at night with if you need us to. Well, you know, um, I mean, that's what the game warden was like. They, There's a lot of people that have raised them for hunting purposes. So there is like an overpopulation problem yeah, yeah. with wild hogs, for oh, sure. I got a pump-action shotgun. <laughs> <laughs> Took that on the river. Chili has been known to wield the hog buster. Uh, that, that's wild, though, because... You know, on the, you, I'm just over the ridge from you. Yeah. yeah. Literally. Well, I think you're on the, what would you be like on, what would that be? The north side of Taylor's Ridge? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. yeah. So I like have, on the Sloppy Floyd side over there? Yes. Okay. Yeah. My property actually uh, corners up to national forestry land and I can get on the Pinhoti from my farm. Mm. Okay. It's, I know right where you're at then. Beautiful bridge there. So as the crow flies, I'm only... Just a hop, skip, and a holler. I bet, yeah, I bet I'm not from from the top of Sims Mountain over to where you're at. Probably ain't two or three mi- miles in a straight line, you know. Yeah. But hogs, man. Well, I'll tell you why them pigs of hers have went rogue because I seen when she fed them, them goats wasn't gonna let them hogs get no kind <laughs> of feed, so they don't have no choice but to go go wild because they'd come over there and them goats would would butt them and them hogs would go to squint just it's like a bad roommate situation so we got the pigs because one of our daughters is obsessed with pigs and so she wrote me this sweet little note like mama the only thing i want on the farm is a pig (laughs) so how can i say no to that so i got these pigs from a friend and um I have these goats that I milk. They're they're dwarfs. They're uh, Nigerian dwarf goats, and they um, they are like OCD. Like they like their space to be clean, and they have this nice little pen. And so I moved the pigs in with the goats, and so they were like, "What in the world? You have ruined our lives." <laughs> oh, so the the goats really do go after the pigs. It's it's comical. 
It's the funny farm out there, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a blast, man. Um, well, I guess we should talk about what is uh, unique about Stacy. Stacy Marshall's her name. She's the owner of Mountain Mama Farms. I was really hoping y'all would um, serenade me like you did the Willie song. Oh, I yeah. was hoping for that. Chad can probably do that. Well, I, you know, I, I'm sung out today. I'm oh, just, sung, I'm sung out today. I was, I was waiting for the John Denver song. <laughs> I thought he was going to be singing some uh, Seven Bridges Road. Son, <laughs> I need to sing some blues, man. I tell you, this mess with the dog is, is, is um, well, you know, that's for another podcast. <laughs> It's something else. But, you know, that's life, you know. I mean, the, the only thing, I, I did have a thought today, you know, I, I, was, I was thinking, has anybody else ever thought that the fact that we are so, um, like, like, averse to death and dying and death is such an ugly, nasty thing for a human, you see another human die it's just ugly nasty and and we're so like it, it's it's so hurtful death is and has anybody ever thought that that actually is an indicator that we were meant for a place where we would live eternally i, I don't know I, i'm just i'm just thinking like the fact that we are so opposed to death and it is so ugly and hurtful to us, our hearts, not not our own death, but when we see others die and, and things like that, that to me is evidence that we are actually meant and created to live eternally where we don't have to, we don't experience that, right? And that's yeah. why it's so hurtful to us, you know, so. Yeah, I mean, to think that it's, it's a sign that death is not of God or else we would enjoy it, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. God didn't create death. He didn't create that. That wasn't part of his plan. It's unnatural. Yeah, yeah. It is really in 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 light of the way we and all of this was meant to be. Death is an unnatural part of the equation, and I think that's why we're so opposed to it because it forces us into this situation that's unnatural to what we were actually created, uh, the existence we were created for in the very beginning. Because if it was a natural part of our existence, you would just think somebody or something dies, and you're just like, oh, that's just part of it. It's just, I don't know, man. I, I'm going through all these. We're created to live, not die. Crazy thoughts, yeah. I, I, mean. I think also, if I can just speak to that, like that's something about being back on the farm and having such a direct connection to God's creation that the just the unfolding of the the redemption process is just so much in the rhythms of the life cycle of the farm, like caring for an animal and, you know, feeling joy and celebration when there's life on the farm, but also there's death too. There's the both and. So, you know, I think we've somehow got disjointed even from our own reality, mortality. And you think about how our ancestors lived a hundred years ago, they were, producing their own food, they were butchering their own animals, and they had such an awareness of 
the sacrifice that was required to sustain their lives, Mm -hmm. the labor that went into actually putting food on the table. And so, um, you know, I've been really grateful and it's been a very transformative experience for me with just the Lord to be brought back to the land in that way, to, to be reminded of that and those rhythms. I think that's true. That's a hundred percent. We've become totally disconnected to that cycle. And I think also another thing, you know, back in, you say just a hundred years ago, people were also burying their own family members. Like the the whole death process in, in current culture is astounding to me. It's a, it's a business. Someone dies, they whisk the body away. You never see them again until they're boxed up nice and pretty and preserved in their casket. Then it goes away and goes into the ground, and you, it's just like, man, it's very, very hands-off and disconnected for many reasons. One, because society turns everything into a business, and everybody wants a cut. You, it ain't, you can't even freaking die for free. You probably get taxed when you die. You, you <laughs> can't family even, does. Yeah, yeah, you can't even die anymore. Uh, like, yeah, we're totally disconnected from it. But I think a lot about death. Death doesn't scare me. It doesn't. It doesn't bother me, uh, in a sense that I'm not opposed to talking about how I feel about it and how ugly it is, and how it is part of our reality. But I guess the the difference in the thoughts that I'm having right now is that that reality and how we feel and interact with it actually can point us back to the fact that we were created for an eternal existence. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. Yeah, and we don't have any control over it too. I think that's another thing that. That makes it a little bit different. And we don't really have control over our life. I mean, to an extent you do. You have this false sense of control, but death you don't. Like when death comes knocking, it's it's not it don't matter to you. And it's permanent. You know, there's no going back from it. Unless you're Jesus. And you're not. <laughs> a lot of people mistake me for Jesus, Stacy. A lot of times I'll I'll put I'll say something or do something and and I'll have people on social media that are um, uh, judgmental, if you would want to say, uh, very, very happy when they see the opportunity to point out hypocrisy in a Christian. Very, very happy when they see that. And so I'll do something or say something, and somebody will say, oh, yeah, just like Jesus would would have done, right? And, and I just have to remind the world every now and then, I'm not Jesus. I'm I, I'm sorry. I'm not Jesus. Well, you know that's a good thing, right? I'm just a dude. When when pe- pe- why do people want to jump on the hypocrisy of Christians? I've actually maybe that's just shifted in my mind, but I'm actually thankful for that because that means we're being held to a high standard, um, and and it gives us a repeated opportunity to point back to why we are all hypocrites because yeah. we can't live up to yeah. the perfect standard that was set. So I actually think it's a good thing um, because we're not the 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 story that we proclaim isn't that once we're saved, then we'll start living perfect. We don't claim that. Uh, I think a lot of people get that twisted. So the the fact that we do, we strive to live differently, but we're still going to fail is actually, it's just more evidence of what we're talking about. So I think it's good when we get pointed out as hypocrites and you can just keep pointing people back to, away from yourself, back to yeah, Jesus. Hey, so. I, amen, man. Uh, have you guys watched that TV series called Chosen? I've heard about I've it. Watched a okay. Some people can't get into it. I got into it. And there's this scene where um, Mary Magdalene 
Jesus essentially, you know, casts all these demons out of her, and she becomes part of the group that follows him around during his ministry. And so Mary, in this Chosen series, she actually backslides, and she goes back to her old life for a few days, and then she comes back into the presence of Jesus. And she's really just ashamed just that, that she did that. And in the scene, it just was so powerful to me because Jesus looks at her in the scene. Now, now everything in Chosen is not biblical, and they have that disclaimer on there. A lot of this is we portray based off of how we think it actually was then historically and expounding on what is in the Bible. And Jesus looks at her and says, did you really think that when after I saved you that you would never sin again? Like, did you think that? And Mary says, uh, uh, I just don't know what to say. And Jesus looks back at her and says, well, I don't require much. And I just thought, man, he doesn't. He doesn't require some some big apology and some... He, he's offering you a free gift. And he don't require much from you. He just wants you to say, I trust in you, Jesus. Forgive me. <laughs> yep. And I just thought, dang, he doesn't require much. Yeah. Thank God he doesn't require much from us. Oh, fallible humans. <laughs> Not that we could give him much if he did yeah, require. Yeah, exactly. He doesn't require anything from us because he gave it all. Yeah. It was impactful to me. I highly recommend that series if you guys haven't watched it. If you can get into it, I, th- I thought it was good. Um, Stacy, where in the world did Mountain Mama Farms start for you? Oh, well, I am a fifth-generation farmer. I uh, grew up on a 300-acre farm in the foothills of northwest Georgia, where we're at. And... Um, you know, my grandparents were on one end of the farm. My mom and dad and brother and I were on the other end of the farm. And, you know, my days were spent back and forth between my mama and papa's house. And, um, like, farming was just, like, the background music of my life. Um, you know, I was always making jams and jellies with mama or uh, papa had me out you know, helping with the cattle if a baby cow was born or feeding the cattle with him. And so um, it was just such the rhythm of my life. And so um, I think that, you know, I, I kind of, um, I guess like all of us, you know, we have to find our way. Um, but I moved off to college and um, met this cute handsome little guy and, um, got married and had, uh, three kiddos. And, um, just for a lot of years, we, uh, lived in Atlanta and, you know, we're happy in our careers there. And, um, then we had kind of a family crisis that kind of, um, played out. And, uh, my dad was an only child and my grandparents were getting in years where, um, it was harder for them to be out on the farm and do as much. And so uh, my husband and I, we, I mean, everybody in our, our friend group in Atlanta thought we were crazy to quit our jobs and move back to the country. But we just, um, we knew we had an opportunity to come and 
love on my family and serve them and and this season of of life that my family was in and so um unbeknownst to me I you know um had no idea what the Lord had um uh, what the Lord was um about to bring me through mm. but um I moved back home you know to be with my people and um when my youngest daughter was one years old, um, she just turned a year old. My mother, who was 60, um, discovered she had pancreatic cancer and she was gone in six weeks. Um, and so uh, she was actually taking care of my grandparents as well. And um, my grandparents actually passed away. Um, my mom's mom, my nanny, and my papa, uh, five months after my mom. So um, I picked out three coffins in five months. And that was a deep season of grief. I entered into a deep season of grief where, um, you know, these people that always been in my life and um, taught me how to live, taught me how to live off the land, um, you know, they were gone. I mean, it just felt like, you know, just, um, very quickly they were gone. Mm -hmm. And, um, I knew that, um, you know, what the Bible says, like we grieve, um, we grieve with those that have hope. And so I knew there was this journey that I was called to grieve and I was called to grieve because, I had been loved deeply, and I did love deeply. And so, man, I was scared of grief. I didn't know what it was going to do to me. Mm. I didn't know what the depression of grief, you know, because that's one of the stages. I was real. I I was thirty three years old, um, and I, I'm forty one now. And so, you know, this was eight years ago. Um, so, yeah, I think I just. Um, I knew that I needed to walk the valley and I knew if I ever wanted to experience great joy again, that I had to allow myself to experience pain and experience um, the loss. And so just the, you know, everything changed really quickly because, you know, those were the, the people that, you know, cooked the holiday dinners and all of a sudden it was like, okay, it's my responsibility to do that. And, um, you know, then who's going to help daddy with the hay, <laughs> you know, and just, I think my brother and I both, um, you know, were, were entering in and being called forth into this new place in our family, you know, that those people that, that it's almost like, um, like my grandparents and even my mom, like losing a parent specifically, it's like, those, those are almost like your, I hate to say like your almost like a barrier between you and heaven in a way. It's almost like those are the people yeah, that like, you yeah. know, like they're going to go before you most likely. Yeah. But, um, and so there's always this like buffer almost like the, and so there was something honestly just about them being, you know, in the presence with the Lord that was, um, you know, in incredibly, uh, I was incredibly, you know, thankful for that. But also there was the grief and the longing of knowing like, they were not here. They're not here. 
And, um, and so, um, I, uh, I was in ministry working, uh, alongside of my husband and we were dorm parents in a college ministry and lived with students. And, um, you know, I, I loved that work, but, um, I was still, still holding this part of me that was longing to be back on this piece of land. And honestly, it wasn't just, you know, me being aware that like, there's this perfect place for all of us to be. It was, it was more this just like calling from the Lord. Like I, I have something I want you to continue here. This is part of your, your family's legacy. And, um, I have, I have healing for you there. I have healing for others there. And, um, you need to go, you need to go back home. And so, um, my husband and I and our three girls, um, you know, one of the last things my papa said to me was, um, take care of this place um, and raise those babies up in that house. And so, um, you know, I opened the door to that old farmhouse and my grandparents' toothbrushes were still in the bathroom and their, you know, pajamas and slippers were, you know, still on their bed. And, um, like, I had to put my hands and touch every single thing that they owned and um, process through it, you know, and process through their life. And so I started this journey of going back home. And, um, you know, I mean, it was, it was crazy because it was like, I'd be, you know, cleaning out a sock drawer and, you know, I'd find, I'd find a love note that they had wrote to each other, you know, when my papa was in the service. So it was just like constantly just like revisiting, um, revisiting, uh, grief and, and processing, you know, their belongings. And so, um, yeah, so we, uh, so Mountain Mama Farms is located on the Scoggins Heritage Farm, which is, um, that my family, my maiden name is Scoggins. It's a, one of the first white settlers to come here, um, from Ireland, um, about 200 years ago. And so when my Great, 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 great grandfather came here. Um, he was able to get land through the Cherokee lottery, through the government. And so I always knew these factors um, in the story. Um, but um, discovered and entered into the story in a different way um, when it became mine. So that's kind of how Mountain Mama Farms came to be. Um from the John Denver song, Country Roads Take Me Home to the Place <laughs> I Belong. And that's been pretty recent, right? Like, I mean, just uh, it's been a couple couple years or something. We, that have, you... we moved into the house. We moved out of the dorm during COVID, during the quarantine, like that first, like that week in March where it all hit. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I, I tell you what, it was, um, man, it was, it, you know, I know quarantining for different people meant different things in their lives. But man, I, it was, it was a good place for me because I 
you know, my husband was not in work and we were with our kids every day and we dove in. I mean, we were, um, and even just like, okay, if, if like, we're not going to go hungry here, we've got, I mean, I'm going to have to like, remember it was like relearning. I mean, it was crazy. Like pulling stuff out of the barn, like my mama's canner, and she'd save like every single jar and Cool Whip container she had ever used, she saved, you know. Um, and then Papa, bless his heart, he was uh, a Marine, and so, I mean, he was ready. He was ready. There were 19 shotguns that we found stowed in the house. So, you know, I'd be, I have to be real careful because I'd be like, you know, cleaning out the kitchen cabinet. And they're, oh, there's a shotgun there. And, the, you know, there's, <laughs> like, there's one under the mattress. There's one in the couch. Like, um, so that that was a journey. They were all antiques, too, that all guns that um, had been in the family for, you know, passed down for generation. And so, anyways, we just were there and, you know, finding our place, finding our place in that, in, in that little um, farm. When you... When you just and beautiful story by the way, I I, I want to I guess I should ask first this this history of your family. One thing I'm very jealous of the history that you have and uh, and the relationship that you have with your heritage, your grandparents, great grandparents. That is a a wonderful wonderful gift in life to have that type of relationship with that part of your past, um, I don't have that, frankly. Were Was that passed down orally, or is this written? Is this looking back through records, or how did you develop this? I mean, how, how did this come to be, your relationship with your, your ancestry and the history of your family, and the farm, for that matter? Yes, yeah, so um, it was mostly orally. Uh, you know, farm families, they're full of good storytellers, as a lot of people are here in the South. So our evenings were spent on the front porch just talking. Mm. I spent a lot of evenings on my mama and papa's porch. I spent a lot of evenings on my neighbor's porch growing up. So I think um, I learned a lot of stories about my family um, and about the community. And... Um, you know, I do think it's really rare. I, I think there's also something that is unique about this story is this little farming community had several families that remained there, you know, um, for generations. So there was this deep, deep, deep knowing your neighbor. Like, yeah, I mean, really knowing your neighbor. And I mean, honestly, in a quirky way, like, I think this was a beautiful picture of what it looks like to bear in love. You know, we bear each other's burdens, but like you, you knew each other's oddities. You knew the crazy things about it. I mean, you couldn't avoid not being known, living that way. And you were dependent on one another because, you know, everybody was trying to just keep their farm going. And I mean, as you know, farming is not a very lucrative um, profession. And so most of the time we didn't have money growing up to hire people to help. And so we did it as a family or we bartered with neighbors. So yeah. it was like, okay, you help us with your hay. Um, I'll come over on Saturday and I'll help you with your, you know, we, we would switch out. And so even through that interaction, it was like you learned stories, 
you know, from other people's families as mm-hmm. well. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome, man. Wow. That's the way, it, that's the way community and also economy, yeah. it's the only logical way for it to work in my mind. And it's funny to think how we're not that far removed from it as far as time is concerned. The, yeah. the, the distance we've moved away from it in such a short amount of time is astounding. You know how quick we could get back to it, though? Yeah. Snap of a finger. Well, it wouldn't take long because <laughs> it would be either survive or return to that manner of community and economy. That would be it. When, when all these, um, uh, you know, different processes and, and stuff all eventually goes away. That's pretty cool. I have to ask, too, you know, I, I guess you kind of answered this, but when you when you left uh, and went to school and you and your husband met and were married and living in Atlanta, I mean, there had to have been some significant tension revolving around you coming back on behalf of your family. Mm. Um, yeah. And I can only imagine the calling you were feeling must have had to have been overwhelmingly strong and almost impossible to ignore because that's a big shift i mean did you ever think you would wind up back on the farm did you did you have that intuition all along or no i didn't and actually that was like a very pivotal conversation that my husband and i had in our engagement um you know he he said that the lord might call us to africa He might call us, you know, to live all over the country, but I don't think he'll ever call us to Gore, Georgia. (laughs) Like, I just, I just don't see that in our path. And if, yeah, I mean, it was one of those like, um, like defining the relationship talks. It was like, I mean, I know how much this means to you. And, you know, obviously I was like, well, I mean, I feel called to marry you. And, um, I want to follow that. And so, I mean, ah, gosh, like in the moment, it felt like something I was sacrificing, you know, in a way for, um, and and then just kind of giving it to the Lord. Like, I think I felt, um, I think I felt like a part of me, I just had to set it aside. And, um, I, um, yeah, um. And I think because the farm has always been such a big part of me, I also didn't want to make it an idol. Like I didn't want the place of coming to back be back home. I wanted, I wanted to check my heart on it too. Yeah. You know, so I mean, in that moment, I was willing to say, like, whatever, Lord, wherever you have me. But if you bring me back there, I'd be really happy. <laughs> you know, just kind of the <laughs> disclaimer. Um, well. Yeah, that had to be a hard shift, man. And you, you know, I, I know it had to. You had had you had to have been feeling a very strong, you know, calling from the Lord to go back there, and and care for your family. And you could have just blew that off, by the way, which is I think a lot of times what you might see um, in families that don't quite have the depth of relationship with their their history and their heritage and um, and even the interpersonal relationships within a family. It's really cool to me how close 
you felt and you had a a almost you had that mentorship coming down from grandparents like the 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 oldest remaining generation was able to men, like literally mentor you um out there in that environment so i don't know i just yeah. think that's so cool um yeah and i'll say also i mean that was a huge part of my spiritual development i think i've always felt if i'm just being telling you my true true like i think when i came to college um I realized I'd had a different upbringing. And, you know, this was back in the day when um, there's an old country song. It says, I was country when country wasn't cool. Do you remember that song? Oh, yeah. That song? You're so much better at singing than us, by the way. Yeah. Oh, that's a good song. But, um, but no, I felt, I felt that away. I mean, I felt like, you know, I talk a little more twangy and I, um, I remember one of my friends having to explain to me what a cul-de-sac was. I didn't know what a cul-de-sac was in a subdivision. Like I, I didn't grow up in a community that had subdivisions, you know? Um, and so again, but I think there was also like, I've kind of felt like some of the ways I grew up were portrayed as backwards. I think that sometimes when you're from the country and as I was in this development, I kind of felt like some of my things were backwards. And even in church, like, you know, I got involved in college and in, in you know, in, in my young adult life, like I was in a lot of bigger mega churches, which were wonderful and great and reaching tons of people. But the culture of those churches were very different than the little mountain country church that I grew up in where those people farmed together, they lived together. You know, Mr. Earl, like I saw him, you know, two or three times a week. And, you know, I mean, so there was just a different, there, for me, there was just a different experience of community moving out of this and, you know, living away for a season. And, um, and that, that wasn't bad. It was just different, just mm-hmm. learning different and learning how my story, you know, and, and, and placement in this world had, had developed me. And so I think, you know, church has always never really been a place where, and I, I think that even like reading the word of God, like my husband is an incredible thinker and he studied in, you know, theology and like, he loves the study of the word. I mean, he will like study it. Now I love reading the word, but like, I want to read it and I want to go sit in a field for an hour. Like I want to go like, like the Lord speaks to me through nature. I mean, that's how I deeply, deeply hear from the Lord. And I see it like, you know, when my mom passed away, um, she loved bluebirds and that was her symbol. It was her symbol of hope. And so she would always have this little phrase. She'd say, whenever you're having a bad day, I promise you, you just look out the window and you find a bluebird. You always find something to be happy about. You always find a bluebird. And that year after she passed away, every single day, the Lord sent a bluebird to me. Every single day for a year. I mean, it would be the dead of winter. Wow. And it's those southeastern bluebirds with the bright blue chest, yeah, you know, yeah. the little small ones, but like it was those. But um you know, I, I think that that for me that my spirituality has always been so connected to my family and community and the land. 
the last part I want to hit on on this relational aspect is when you did leave and go out into the city, did the ones that sh- that were behind that stayed here, did they ever get to it? Was there ever a point where they started to see you differently? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Did yeah. that affect you when you came back? Oh, yeah. And even with my family. Yeah. How have you overcome that? I don't think I have. Okay. <laughs> I think I still, uh, yeah, it's such a great question. Mm. You don't You don't have to have an answer No, no, no. I think, I think where I'm at is understanding, like, I'm in a place in my life where I feel more comfortable owning my story, like owning where I came from and being proud of that, but also being honest about it, not just like white picket fencing it and like everything was perfect and rosy, but just like being honest about it. Um, you know, I, I remember the first time I came home from college, my brother said, you sound like a Yankee. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> like he suddenly thought my voice was sounding different. And um, and then I did. I, I realized, you know, when I was in the corporate world, I, I not corporate world, but the education world, um, I was a teacher and then I was training teachers. And, you know, there was definitely a sense where I, I, would, I would adjust the way that I talked so that I would um, – so that I could be heard, that, that I could seem credible, because I felt like the more of a country accent that I had, the more of a connotation there would be yeah. to my intelligence. Or, um, and so anyways, I, I think that, um, um, you know, I felt moving back home, the curiosity of like, well, you're different but are you, but are you still the same? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Great answer. I asked that question because it's applicable to me in my life. I also went away for a long time, came back different. And you always wonder, what do, what do people really think of? Like, what are they really thinking about? Not that it matters, but it's a, it's an interesting question to ask yourself. Like, these, the, this part of my people have stayed here and they have carried out, you know, their life apart from me while I was gone. I've had a totally different experience than them. And now I'm back and working yourself back into interaction and relationship with them is difficult yeah. sometimes. Yeah. I, I think on being on the other side of that is like the question I would see someone like either of you asking is I've left from what I was doing and essentially now you're a different person coming back and basically it is my family or these people that were here willing to accept me for who I am now regardless I mean like in your situation we didn't love you because of who you were before we just loved you because you were family and when you come back the people that still love you love you because of you. And if you've changed, then you've just changed. And like, are are they willing to accept who you are now? You know, I don't know if that makes sense, but that's, that's what I think is that some of them will be unwilling. Yeah. Some of, I mean, I think there's a lot that plays into that though. I think there's, 
I think some of it, it, some of the unwillingness is because your perspective and your beliefs have changed on certain things and they don't like that, right? Uh, I think jealousy plays a part in it. Um, I think there are many aspects that play a part in that, that, that being a difficult thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, well, I tell you what, old Chili, he ain't never set in on one of these serious conversations. He ain't saying much. What you want me to talk? What you want me to talk over? It's a little too serious for him, I think. Ain't it? No, you maybe know, he's just sitting he's over pensive. there learning. He's no, reflecting. You know, I'm actually very interested in her story, and I actually prefer serious conversations. So you can just <laughs> shut your mouth, Chad. <laughs> you got new shoes on, man. He Quit. bought new shoes. Dang, man! I didn't, I didn't buy these. Quit trying to not make it serious. I, okay, like, I okay. was enjoying the conversation. I'm okay. in deep thought over he's here. A, he's a stew pot. Well, yeah. You're a stew pot. He's you're got just a, over there thinking. Look, have, I don't know if you've Chad ever... Chad can't handle my thoughts anyway, so... It's, I don't know if you've ever seen Star Wars, Stacy, but this is um, young Luke, and... Uh, I've never seen that movie. I'm Yoda. So this is good for him. I... I, I Chili usually only has to come to work one day a week. Would you get back to the letting her tell okay. her story? I'm interested I'm, in it. I'm thinking, I'm, what I'm, a transition. Let's talk about Stacy's integration from Atlanta back to the farm. And, you know about I mean, Star Wars Chili's got feels no that. shoes. Hey, that's just the way he rolls. But I'm look, I'm thankful that you uh, that I'm here because look, Chili only used to, usually has to come to work one day a week, but. We've we've brought him on in for the second day this week because I wanted him to learn from you, mm. Stacy. So, um, bless you. That's kind. Well, I appreciate I appreciate getting to hear your story, man. I'd like for you to keep telling it. Mm. <laughs> All right. <laughs> um. Yeah, I wanted to say one more thing about that. God, I think what is also, I'm I'm just gonna go for it, y'all. I think what's hard is you know. The world has their eyes on this little corner of the world right now. Um, I just read, you know, NBC News has a, a, a correspondent that is looking and investigating, not investigating, but reporting. And, you know, I think, um, I think what has caused in me to say is like, again, like, you know, we can ask the question all day long, well, who am I? And we can think about, you know, what defines that? Is it our past that defines that? Is it the place that we are from? And, you know, I think all of us in this room know the answer to that, like where our true identity is from. And so, um, you know, claiming that is really important to me you know, that, that above being from dirt town or, you know, um, any political affiliation or whatever, like that, that the number one descriptor of me would be, um, you know, to be a Christ follower and that that's where my true identity comes from. Mm. Um, and so there is a vulnerability in some ways for me, moving back home is also that transition happened for me when I was, away. And so, you know, um, I think that, you know, there's, there's people from my past that, um, 
can also see this transformation in me and feel like, you know, am I this judgmental Christian now? Like, can we not have fun anymore? Like, how do I interact with you? Yeah. Um, and, and so like, you know, for me, I like, I, gosh, I just, I love, you know, thinking of the personhood of Jesus, like really thinking of that, like Jesus was constantly doing things to surprise people. You know, he was sitting with a woman at the well, like nobody did that. You know, like nobody really does that now. You know, it's like, don't sit with the women, you know, but he did it. Like, and people were probably talking about him. And like, he showed up in ways that constantly caused people to question, who is he? Wow. Like he's working on the Sabbath. He's healing people on the Sabbath. He can't be the savior. Like constantly keeping people in, in some ways, suspicion and questioning. And I'm like, man, that's the kind of Christian I want to be. Like, I don't, I don't like, I, um, you know, we'll maybe dive into some of the, my part of the story. But like, you know, I think we're living in a time when people meet you. They want to figure out what box you go in. Like, let me sort you. Like, are, are you on this line? Are you on this side? Like, what do you believe? Are you with me? Are you for me? Are you against me? Like, where are we at? You know, let me size you up. And, um... I just want to keep people guessing. You're doing a mighty fine job at it. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're doing a mighty fine job at it. Well, I think I think the reason that most people want to do that is because they're easily categorized themselves. And that's that's why I think that is. I think most people feel more comfortable when they just fit in all these boxes and they portray yeah. that to the world. So they want to do that to you. And uh, I think that's... Yeah, the most interesting people are people that do surprise you, that aren't predictable. You know, when, when you're just, I, I don't know. I think I think that's part of what being interesting is, is not being where people can figure you out in five seconds of meeting you. And uh, I think that's part of being a peacemaker, too. Yeah. You know, and some of that's hard because it's like if you're trying to you know, the, you know, Jesus was the Prince of Peace, but peacemaking is a very active thing. And I think, you know, someone has said to me before and kind of spoke this over my life and said, you know, they felt like I was a bridge, like I was able to kind of bridge different communities and conversations. And, you know, I, 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 I mean, I, I really, I think that can only be, you know, a gift from the Lord. But I think even sometimes bridges, um, like the the danger in that is also standing in your own, you know, not being a chameleon, like really finding your voice. And so for me, when I feel that pull of like, well, where do I belong? You know, knowing that I have that answer, you know, and, um, and that's where I find my rest. You know, so I I know Stacy's husband. He's actually my counselor for he's he's mine and Brooks' uh, marriage counselor. And when 
I've spent some time, obviously, with Stacy's husband, and and uh, when he kind of very gently revealed to me Stacy's most current, I guess you would say, mission. I it, you talk about she talks about keeping people guessing and and really going with the kind of outside of the box um way whatever direction whatever like and creating these bridges and so so anyways the way i reacted to jeremy oh gosh i just said his name it's okay okay jeremy I, i don't know you know with 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 his role i know there's certain things i think he told me i could say that he's my marriage it, counselor it is he so the the boundary of that is he's the one that has to be quiet okay all right he's well, I, the one he, and and that will say that about him he holds space for people really well and and thank you for the things that you've said to encourage because i know nothing about what happens behind his doors because he um wants to provide safe spaces for people so thank you for acknowledging that yeah he well he does that because i jeremy knows things about me and my marriage and my business and stuff that just don't everybody need to know because he gets the raw dump of everything but he'll take it to the grave yeah man i I can tell you that it is a honorable uh honorable honorable i guess place of service and he's made for that man i'm telling you but we'll have him on the podcast another day but um when he told me about your most recent mission where you know you had the article published in the New York Times, which I read some of. I intentionally didn't want to dig too deep into that because I didn't want to have any preconceived notions of what your mission was. And I know how I know how writers can take a story and make it what they want to make it into because I've also been interviewed by some magazines and stuff. And what is put in there is usually pieces of what it actually is. Um, the part that I did read was very interesting and intriguing but my reaction to it was that what the heck i've never like we're in we're in northwest georgia like who who's having this conversation in northwest georgia like why would you why would you not just brush that topic why would you not just brush that portion of your family's history just under the rug i mean but who can like yeah. what good can come of you bringing that up in this cultural environment yeah <sighs> i it it really caught me off guard um i almost my immediate response was to want to uh pass some sort of judgment on you mm. because i'm thinking you know jeremy's just telling me little pieces of it and the word reparations comes up and and these these words and I'm, I'm i immediately just want to say what the heck she must be some crazy lady mm. to bring this up like so you caught you're you're living it out man you're living it out and i think the path that you've t- chosen to take on this specific portion of your mission is a very christ-like um direction <laughs> I could yep. see Jesus taking this route. <laughs> oh, uh, and so it was, uh, 
it's 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 been so intriguing to me and and I just wish that you would go ahead and take us into that journey um, a little bit as deep as you want to go I mean I want to hear what this portion of your mission is all about how it came about and the direction that you've went and the listeners I know you have no clue what I'm talking about right now but I'm hoping Stacy will share with us because um, it's pretty unique and we need a break. Let's t- let's take a quick break, and then we're gonna we're gonna jump into that. All right, sweet. Well, we're back. Um, we'll talk about Chili's folly another day. Uh, I-, I think we we've set this conversation up just before the break for a kind of a shift gears into Stacy's most current mission, mm-hmm. and so. Back to that conversation. Can you walk us through this? Sure. Journey. I will. Yeah, I I think this is definitely journey is a good word because um, this is not anything I have sought out to do, but more something that I think found me and has been in motion for many, many years before I was born. So after my mama and papa died, um, I was going through their house and found a box, a a cowboy boot box, actually. And um, I opened it up, and mama had just put all these, like, newspaper articles that she'd clipped out, like when my dad, you know, was in 4-H or when I was in beauty pageants and like family pictures and family um, like little history things. And so I was going through this box of just family history. And one of the things that I discovered was a printout of um, a copy, uh, not an original, but a copy of um, the Scoggins family slave records. And so it was... um, uh, really sobering to find this document and to see your family name on it and to see slave schedule, you know, at the top of it. And um, it was my great, great, great grandfather, the, the first one to come here. And his name was W.D. Scoggins. And uh, then under his name, there were seven numbers. There were no names mentioned, just seven numbers. And then listed off was male or female, and then their race. Um, and then also their ages. And so um, it was two men in their 30s um, and a um, woman, and then uh, three children, four children. And so... Um, the youngest was six months old. Um, and so I, 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 I mean, I really honestly felt like somebody punched me in the gut because I was like, wow, like, okay, uh, like, what do I do with this, you know? And then I started kind of like remembering, like, I don't think I remember Paul talking that much about this growing up. But then I remembered, okay, there was this one story I had just had, my first daughter, she was 13, 
I mean, she's 13 now, so this was 13 years ago. So she was two weeks old, and I was sitting in my mama and papa's house, and I was um, I was breastfeeding her, and um, I was having a really hard time producing milk, and she was not eating, and I mean, she was. We were really concerned, and um, my papa, you know, he he could hear her fussing, and he was like. He was trying to comfort me, honestly. He was like, no, baby, that's not your fault. You know, it's not your fault that you're not, you know, you're not making enough milk. Like, because I was crying. I was emotional about it. And he's like, you know, that comes from all the women in your family. All the women in your family have had this problem. All the Scoggins women have had, you know, problems with this. And um, and then, <laughs> you know, I think the next story was just like, felt like, like, why was he sharing this? But I think, honestly, he... He had been in that place in life where he'd started telling me all these family stories, I think, because he knew his time was coming, his time was coming um, to an end. And so then all of a sudden he was like, you know, that's why your great-great-great-grandfather bought the slave woman. And, uh, and then he said, you know, her name was Hester, and she nursed my grandfather. And, uh, you know, your grandfather, your, your grandfather, uh, my grandfather, you know, he took care of the horses during the Civil War and, you know, um, you know, all his brothers and him came home and, you know, they they basically all became alcoholics because of the war and lost the farm, um, that farm that they were farming on. But um, but they said Hester, he, he said Hester, Hester was so loved by the family that she stayed with the family after the Civil War was over. And, you know, he said, we treated her real good. We treated her like family. And she's even buried with the family. And so, you know, when I found this document, it was just like this, like this moment, it was like a movie. You know, it was like this, I had this flashback of like remembering that story. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like this is, this is the purchase of when, when and why they bought Hester. Mm-hmm. And so um, then I found some more documents, some census records, which confirmed the story. And I found Hester. She, um, she was a landowner. She um, acquired land after the Civil War and when she was freed. And then she actually, so she did. She went and, went and worked for the family. Um, she worked for one of, the, one of the children she nursed. Um, I mean, she nursed all 12 of the Scoggins kids. And, um, you know, so after the Civil War, she actually went and continued to work for the family as a domestic servant. And so, you know, um, I think I started, like, recognizing, and, and this is a hard family story to tell. And let me, let me just say this, like, as I'm telling this, um, Family stories are hard. Yeah. Whether we know or we don't know. Like, they're both hard. Like, the knowing and the not knowing. And um, and I think it's hard because no family story is without its baggage. Truth. And so... You know, I know there's probably people listening that think, 
you know, this is, this is, doesn't apply to me because, you know, my family didn't have this history. But I think for me, I, I got to this moment of my life where I recognized this is part of my family story. And there's pain in this story. And I really, I can't change the pain of that story. Like it happened before I was born. But I can only control what I do with it from here on out. And so, I mean, I had a moment where I was like, you know, you know, there's been generations of, uh, you know, just, we just didn't talk about it. I mean, there was a lot of silence. And so there's part of me that just wanted to put it back in that box and just say, that's it. You know, like maybe my kids just don't need to know about this. Maybe... I don't need to talk about this, and I, um, you know, and, and I sat on it for a while. a while. For a while, I didn't talk about it. I just sat on it and just thought of it and prayed on it. Um, but there was something about the story and how it had been told to me and it had been told to my dad that it felt like this story is outside of our family also like this story is connected to other people and the pain of that story is connected to other people and I think what also was confusing as all this was unfolding you know we've all like seen the cultural moments that we've been in over the last I mean even specifically over the last two years and so you know I think um I think I even began to like really honestly fear and anticipate like how will people like if I start talking about this or asking neighbors or whatever you know how are they going to perceive me as a white woman talking about slave records like this this um you know are they gonna you know see it as me trying to glorify something that in the past it's horrific or you know um you know or are uh, you know the other the other side of that like um like, why even talk about it? It's in the past. Like, you don't need to, you know, what's done is done. Like, move on. Yeah. So I think I just felt conflicted, you know, and I wanted to make sure that my heart was in the right place. Like, that I was, that I was moving forward in a place um, that was motivated by the Lord. So I, um, I took the records and I went to um, our neighbor, Mr. Melvin Mosley, Pastor Melvin Mosley. And Pastor Mosley and his wife, Miss Betty, um, have been probably the most consistent spiritual mentors of my life. Um, they've been there before I was born. My dad and Melvin um, grew up together Um they worked on the farm and played with one another as boys. My, my dad didn't have any siblings, and so Melvin literally was like a brother to him. They were at each other's house every day, but they went to different schools because of the color of their skin. And so Melvin went to the black school, and my dad went to the white school, and they'd come home as six-year-olds, and, and you know, Melvin and my dad would say, oh, we had chocolate milk today, and you know, Melvin would be like, we didn't have chocolate milk today. Like, what? we don't get chocolate milk at my school. And so they had this, 
they had a brotherhood with one another. They had a deep relationship. And I, I know people say that often, you know, but, but this is true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like this was true, but they were born in a, they were born in a culture and in a, in a society where they had to navigate these racial boundaries that were in place. So Melvin became an educator in our county. He was the, one of the first black educators to, um, uh, you know, he grew up, went to college and, you know, then stayed home and um, was my principal in high school. Um, and so he, um, I mean, he's just always been there, you know, um, and so I went to him because I have this relationship with him. And, um, and I knew I could have a hard conversation with him. And I knew I would be loved. And I knew I, my motives would not be questioned. And I knew he'd be honest. And so we started talking about the story. And I told him how the story had been told to me. You know, and, and he was like, yeah, I mean, if, you know, he, he helped retell that family story. He's like, yeah, well, the reason that she stayed with the family is because she had nowhere to go, you know, as, as a slave woman back then. And so. That's what I was thinking too. Yeah. 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 And so, you know, we started talking about that and, you know, um, and then um, he just stopped and he said, you know, this is this should have been talked about before you were born, Stacy. Like, um, and I just said, will you pray for me? And, um, and man, <laughs> Melvin has the gift of speaking into the moment. You know, I, I think when, when, um, and I, and I, I want to be this person, I hope I'm becoming this person, but it's like when we are in community with one another And we recognize like, hey, you're in a moment in your life. Like, this is a marker for you. This is a pivotal point in your life. Mm -hmm. And as an elder in your life or as a spiritual mentor, like I have, I have the ability right now to speak into your life. And he spoke into my life and he prayed for any generational bondage of racism to be broken, that it would be broken with uh, with my line and that like moving forward, um, that I would be able to take it further than my dad and my grandfather did. And, you know, he thanked the Lord for them, um, because he knew, you know, who they were. And, and then he said, and I'll never forget this phrase. He said, Lord, I just pray that Stacy would pour out love on that place. Like that's your calling on that farm. You know, use that farm for good. Pour out love on that place. And so, um, so that was my charge, you know. And, and Melvin, you know, he wasn't trying to absolve me of any, like, white guilt or anything like that. That wasn't what the conversation was like. The conversation really was like him calling me forward as a community elder. Like him saying, now it's your turn. It's your turn. It's your place. So, um, so I've been trying to walk that out. So what happened next was I went to a farming conference. I met a guy who is a chef and a farmer and he, um, uh, was leading a session for black farmers 
And I went to this session and I stood up in this room and black farmers and I heard stories of how many of their families had lost their land like during the 60s and 70s and um, or were denied, you know, access to loans to acquire property. And so um, many of them were talking about the struggle or the connotation within the, the community, the black community of returning to farming because of the association of being oppressed through slavery by the land, like working the land was the oppression. So, um, you know, I was listening to their stories and listening to their journeys. And, you know, I was one of the only white women in the room. And I really had that moment of like, do I talk here? Like, you know, if, if I get emotional, is it going to be, you know, how's this, how, I mean, I just started getting in my head, like, how are people going to perceive me right now? And even question my own heart. Like I need, like, I need to be aware of how my voice enters this space. And so I, I think that that was felt in the room because what, what I said was I'm here and I need to learn. I need to learn what pouring love out on this place looks like. And I need to learn what it looks like to make it right. And, um, and so unbeknownst to me, there was a New York Times reporter in the room at the time. And so after the, the conference was over, she pursued me and my friend Matthew and said, I want to follow your story. And then COVID hit like two weeks later. And so um, it was it was crazy because when she kind of picked back up with us, um, you know, we I was in the midst of like moving back to the farm and still like recovering this stuff. But it was a wonderful opportunity working with her. I mean, it was a very, anytime you tell a story, it's a vulnerable process. Um but she was very kind in hearing the story. But then also there was, you know, um, all these things that were unfolding culturally at that moment with, you know, the George Floyd um, footage that everybody was watching and just the, I mean, just, you know, all the stuff, even like there was no space for people to gather and have these conversations. So everybody was just being, you know, pissed off and angry and, all this stuff was coming out, like people were just being, I mean, I, I was like, woo, social media was just like a horrible place at the time, you know? And so, I mean, I, I think I even in the, the moment of the story felt like, gosh, like, you know, um, I have to stay focused here. Like I have to, I can't be distracted. Like this is all important as well, but also like me doing this is not a reaction to all of these other things. Mm-hmm. Well, it could it could have easily been seen that way. Yeah, yeah. But but also these things are important in unfolding. I mean, I believe all things come to pass, and in you know under the Lord's hand. And so, like the the it was no coincidence that all of this was happening in that timing. And so um, after the article came out, um, you know. What was surprising was a ton of people reached out with like positive feedback. And um, Mr. Melvin and I were talking and we were like, you know, it's crazy because I think the world is just really starved for hope right now. And yeah, uh, it is. Yeah. But I think also sometimes hope pisses people off. 